Part 2 of Omnilingual by H. Beam Piper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Trishy Matson. They all got out of the truck and stretched their legs and looked up the road to the tall building with the queer conical cap askew on its top. The four little figures that had been busy against its wall climbed into the jeep and started back slowly, the smallest of them, Sachiko Koromitsu, paying out an electric cable behind. When it pulled up beside the truck, they climbed out. Sachiko attached the free end of the cable to a nuclear electric battery. At once, dirty gray smoke and orange dust puffed out from the wall of the building, and a second later, the multiple explosion banged. She, and Tony Latimer and Major Lindemann climbed onto the truck, leaving the jeep stand by the road. When they reached the building, a satisfyingly wide breach had been blown in the wall. Latimer had placed his shots between two of the windows. They were both blown out along with the wall between, and lay unbroken on the ground. Martha remembered the first building they had entered. A Space Force officer had picked up a stone and thrown it at one of the windows, thinking that would be all they'd need to do. It had bounced back. He had drawn his pistol. They'd all carried guns, then, on the principle that what they didn't know about Mars might easily hurt them, and fired four shots. The bullets had ricocheted, screaming thinly. There were four coppery smears of jacket metal on the window, and a little surface spalling. Somebody tried a rifle. The 4,000 FS bullet had cracked the glass-like pane without penetrating. An oxyacetylene torch had taken an hour to cut the window out. The lab crew, aboard the ship, were still trying to find out just what the stuff was. Tony Latimer had gone forward and was sweeping his flashlight back and forth, swearing petulantly, his voice harshened and amplified by his helmet speaker. I thought I was blasting into a hallway. This lets us into a room. Careful, there's about a two-foot drop to the floor and a lot of rubble from the blast just inside. He stepped down through the breach. The others began dragging equipment out of the trucks. Shovels and picks and crowbars and sledges, portable floodlights, cameras, sketching materials, an extension ladder, even alpinists' ropes and crampons and pickaxes. Hubert Penrose was shouldering something that looked like a surrealist machine gun, but which was really a nuclear electric jackhammer. Martha selected one of the spike-shod mountaineer's ice axes, with which she could dig or chop or poke or pry or help herself over rough footing. The windows, grimed and crusted with fifty millennia of dust, filtered in a dim twilight. Even the breach in the wall, in the morning shade, lighted only a small patch of floor. Somebody snapped on a floodlight, aiming it at the ceiling. The big room was empty and bare. Dust lay thick on the floor and reddened the once white walls. It could have been a large office, but there was nothing left in it to indicate its use. This one's been stripped up to the seventh floor, Latimer exclaimed. Street level will be cleaned out completely. Do for living quarters and shops, then, Lindemann said. Added to the others, this'll take care of everybody on the shop rally. Seemed to have been a lot of electric or electronic apparatus over along this wall, one of the Space Force officers commented. Ten or twelve electric outlets. 
He brushed the dusty wall with his glove, then scraped on the floor with his foot. I can see where things were pried loose. The door, one of the double sliding things the Martians had used, was closed. Selim von Olmhorst tried it, but it was stuck fast. The metal latch parts had frozen together, molecule binding itself to molecule, since the door had last been closed. Hubert Penrose came over with the jackhammer, fitting a spear-point chisel into place. He set the chisel in the joint between the doors, braced the hammer against his hip, and squeezed the trigger switch. The hammer banged briefly like the weapon it resembled, and the doors popped a few inches apart, then stuck. Enough dust had worked into the recesses into which it was supposed to slide to block it on both sides. That was old stuff. They ran into that every time they had to force a door, and they were prepared for it. Somebody went outside and brought in a power jack, and finally, one of the doors inched back to the door jam. That was enough to get the lights and equipment through. They all passed from the room to the hallway beyond. About half the other doors were open. Each had a number and a single word, Darfulva, over it. One of the civilian volunteers, a woman professor of natural ecology from Penn State University, was looking up and down the hall. You know, she said, I feel at home here. I think this was a college of some sort, and these were classrooms. That word up there, that was the subject taught, or the department. And those electronic devices, all where the class would face them. Audiovisual teaching aids. A 25-story university? Latimer scoffed. Why, a building like this would handle 30,000 students. Maybe there were that many. This was a big city in its prime, Martha said, moved chiefly by a desire to oppose Latimer. Yes, but think of the snafu in the halls every time they changed classes. It'd take half an hour to get everybody back and forth from one floor to another. He turned to von Olmhorst. I'm going up above this floor. This place has been looted clean up to here, but there's a chance there may be something above, he said. I'll stay on this floor at present, the Turco-German replied. There will be much coming and going, and dragging things in and out. We should get this completely examined and recorded first. Then Major Lindemann's people can do their worst here. Well, if nobody else wants it, I'll take the downstairs, Martha said. I'll go along with you, Hubert Penrose told her. If the lower floors have no archaeological value, we'll turn them into living quarters. I like this building. It'll give everybody room to keep out from under everybody else's feet. He looked down the hall. We ought to find escalators at the middle. The hallway, too, was thick underfoot with dust. Most of the open rooms were empty, but a few contained furniture, including small seat desks. The original proponent of the university theory pointed these out as just what might be found in classrooms. There were escalators, up and down, on either side of the hall, and more on the intersecting passage to the right. That's how they handled the students between classes, Martha commented, and I'll bet there are more ahead there. They came to a stop where the hallway ended at a great square central hall. There were elevators there on two of the sides and four escalators still usable as stairways. But it was the walls and the paintings on them that brought them up short and staring. They were clouded with dirt. She was trying to imagine what they must have looked like originally, 
and at the same time estimating the labor that would be involved in cleaning them. But they were still distinguishable, as was the word Darfhova, in golden letters above each of the four sides. It was a moment before she realized from the murals that she had at last found a meaningful Martian word. They were a vast historical panorama, clockwise around the room. A group of skin-clad savages squatting around a fire. Hunters with bows and spears, carrying a carcass of an animal slightly like a pig. Nomads riding long-legged, graceful mounts like hornless deer. Peasants sowing and reaping. Mud-walled hut villages and cities. Processions of priests and warriors. Battles with swords and bows and with cannon and muskets. Galleys and ships with sails and ships without visible means of propulsion, and aircraft, changing costumes and weapons, and machines and styles of architecture. A richly fertile landscape, gradually merging into barren deserts and bushlands, the time of the great planet-wide drought. The canal builders, men with machines recognizable as steam shovels and derricks, digging and quarrying and driving across the empty plains with aqueducts, more cities, seaports on the shrinking oceans, dwindling, half-deserted cities, an abandoned city with four tiny humanoid figures and a thing like a combat car in the middle of a brush-grown plaza. They and their vehicle dwarfed by the huge, lifeless buildings around them. She had not the least doubt Darfhova was history. Wonderful, von Olmhorst was saying. The entire history of this race. Why, if the painter depicted appropriate costumes and weapons and machines for each period, and got the architecture right, we can break the history of this planet into eras and periods and civilizations. You can assume they're authentic. The faculty of this university will insist on authenticity in the Darfhulva history department, she said. Yes, Darfhulva history. And your magazine was a journal of Sornholva, Penrose exclaimed. You have a word, Martha. It took her an instant to realize that he had called her by her first name and not Dr. Dane. She wasn't sure if that weren't a bigger triumph than learning a word of the Martian language, or a more auspicious start. Alone, I suppose that Holva means something like science or knowledge or study. Combined, it would be equivalent to our ology. And Darf would mean something like past, or old times, or human events, or chronicles. That gives you three words, Martha, Sachiko jubilated. You did it! Let's don't go too fast, Latimer said, for once not derisively. I'll admit that Darfhulva is the Martian word for history as a subject of study. I'll admit that Hulva is the general word, and Darf modifies it and tells us which subject is meant. But as for assigning specific meanings, we can't do that because we don't know just how the Martians thought, scientifically or otherwise. He stopped short, startled by the blue-white light that blazed as Sid Chamberlain's Kleegets went on. When the whirring of the camera stopped, it was Chamberlain who was speaking. This is the biggest thing yet. The whole history of Mars, Stone Age to the end, on all four walls. I'm taking this with a fast shutter, but we'll telecast it in slow motion, from the beginning to the end. 
Tony, I want you to do the voice for it. Running commentary, interpretation of each scene as it's shown. Would you do that? Would he do that, Martha thought. If he had a tail, he'd be wagging it at the very thought. Well, there ought to be more murals on the other floors, she said. Who wants to come downstairs with us? Sachiko did, immediately. Ivan Fitzgerald volunteered. Sid decided to go upstairs with Tony Latimer, and Gloria Standish decided to go upstairs too. Most of the party would remain on the seventh floor to help Salim von Olmhorst get it finished. After poking tentatively at the escalator with the spike of her ice axe, Martha led the way downward. The sixth floor was Darfholva too. Military and technological history from the character of the murals. They looked around the central hall and went down to the fifth. It was like the floors above, except that the big quadrangle was stacked with dusty furniture and boxes. Ivan Fitzgerald, who was carrying the floodlight, swung it slowly around. Here the murals were of heroic-sized Martians, so human in appearance as to seem members of her own race each holding some object, a book, or a test tube, or some bit of scientific apparatus. And behind them were scenes of laboratories and factories, flame and smoke, lightning flashes. The word at the top of each of the four walls was one with which she was already familiar. Sornhulva. Hey, Martha, there's that word, Ivan Fitzgerald exclaimed. The one in the title of your magazine. He looked at the paintings. Chemistry or physics? Both, Hubert Penrose considered. I don't think the Martians made any sharp distinction between them. See, the old fellow with the scraggly whiskers must be the inventor of the spectroscope. He has one in his hands, and he has a rainbow behind him. And the woman in the blue smock beside him worked in organic chemistry. See the diagrams of long-chain molecules behind her. What word would convey the idea of chemistry and physics taken as one subject? Sorn Hulva, Sachiko suggested. If Hulva's something like science, Sorn must mean matter or substance or physical object. You were right all along, Martha. A civilization like this would certainly leave something like this that would be self-explanatory. This'll wipe a little more of that superior grin off Tony Latimer's face, Fitzgerald was saying, as they went down the motionless escalator to the floor below. Tony wants to be a big shot. When you want to be a big shot, you can't bear the possibility of anybody else being a bigger big shot. And whoever makes a start on reading this language will be the biggest big shot archaeology ever saw. That was true. She hadn't thought of it in that way before. And now she tried not to think about it. She didn't want to be a big shot. She wanted to be able to read the Martian language and find things out about the Martians. Two escalators down, they came out on a mezzanine around a wide central hall on the street level. The floor 40 feet below them and the ceiling 30 feet above. Their lights picked out object after object below, a huge group of sculptured figures in the middle some kind of a motor vehicle jacked up on trestles for repairs. Things that looked like machine guns and autocannon. Long tables, tops littered with a dust-covered miscellany. Machinery, boxes and crates and containers. They made their way down and walked among the clutter, 
missing a hundred things for every one they saw, until they found an escalator to the basement. There were three basements, one under another, until at last they stood at the bottom of the last escalator, on a bare concrete floor, swinging the portable floodlight over stacks of boxes and barrels and drums, and heaps of powdery dust. The boxes were plastic, nobody had ever found anything made of wood in the city, and the barrels and drums were of metal or glass or some glass-like substance. They were outwardly intact. The powdery heaps might have been anything organic, or anything containing fluid. Down here, where wind and dust could not reach, evaporation had been the only force of destruction after the minute life that caused putrefaction had vanished. They found refrigeration rooms, too, and using Martha's ice axe and the pistol-like vibratool Sachiko carried on her belt, they pounded and pried one open to find desiccated piles of what had been vegetables and leathery chunks of meat. Samples of that stuff, rocketed up to the ship, would give a reliable estimate, by radiocarbon dating, of how long ago this building had been occupied. The refrigeration unit, radically different from anything their own culture had produced, had been electrically powered. Sachiko and Penrose, poking into it, found the switches still on. The machine had only ceased to function when the power source, whatever that had been, had failed. The middle basement had also been used, at least toward the end, for storage. It was cut in half by a partition pierced by but one door. They took half an hour to force this, and were on the point of sending above for heavy equipment when it yielded enough for them to squeeze through. Fitzgerald, in the lead with the light, stopped short, looked around, and then gave a groan that came through his helmet speaker like a foghorn. Oh, no! No! What's the matter, Ivan? Sachiko, entering behind him, asked anxiously. He stepped aside. Look at it, Sachi. Are we going to have to do all that? Martha crowded through behind her friend and looked around, then stood motionless, dizzy with excitement. Books! Case on case of books! Half an acre of cases! Fifteen feet to the ceiling! Fitzgerald and Penrose, who had pushed in behind her, were talking in rapid excitement. She only heard the sound of their voices, not their words. This must be the main stacks of the university library, the entire literature of the vanished race of Mars. In the center, down an aisle between the cases, she could see the hollow square of the librarian's desk, and stairs and a dumbwaiter to the floor above. She realized that she was walking forward with the others toward this. Sachiko was saying, I'm the lightest, let me go first. She must be talking about the spidery metal stairs. I'd say they were safe, Penrose answered. The trouble we've had with doors around here shows that the metal hasn't deteriorated. In the end, the Japanese girl led the way, more cat-like than ever, in her caution. The stairs were quite sound, in spite of their fragile appearance, and they all followed her. The floor above was a duplicate of the room they had entered and seemed to contain about as many books. Rather than waste time forcing the door here, they returned to the middle basement and came up by the escalator down which they had originally descended. 
The upper basement contained kitchens, electric stoves, some with pots and pans still on them, and a big room that must have been, originally, the students' dining room, though when last used it had been a workshop. As they expected, the library reading room was on the street-level floor, directly above the stacks. It seemed to have been converted into a sort of common living room for the building's last occupants. An adjoining auditorium had been made into a chemical works. There were vats and distillation apparatus and a metal fractionating tower that extended through a hole knocked in the ceiling 70 feet above. A good deal of plastic furniture, of the sort that they had been finding everywhere in the city, was stacked about, some of it broken up, apparently for reprocessing. The other rooms on the street floor seemed also to have been devoted to manufacturing and repair work. A considerable industry, along a number of lines, must have been carried on here for a long time after the university had ceased to function as such. On the second floor, they found a museum. Many of the exhibits remained, tantalizingly half-visible in grimed glass cases. There had been administrative offices there, too. The doors of most of them were closed, and they did not waste time trying to force them. But those that were open had been turned into living quarters. They made notes and rough floor plans to guide them in future more thorough examination. It was almost noon before they had worked their way back to the seventh floor. Salim von Olmhorst was in a room on the north side of the building, sketching the position of things before examining them and collecting them for removal. He had the floor checkerboarded with a grid of chalked lines, each numbered. We have everything on this floor photographed, he said. I have three gangs, all the floodlights I have, sketching and making measurements. At the rate we're going, with time out for lunch, we'll be finished by the middle of the afternoon. You've been working fast. Evidently you aren't being high church about a qualified archaeologist entering rooms first, Penrose commented. Ah, childishness, the old man exclaimed impatiently. These officers of yours aren't fools. All of them have been to intelligence school and criminal investigation school. Some of the most careful amateur archaeologists I ever knew were retired soldiers or policemen. But there isn't much work to be done. Most of the rooms are either empty or like this one. A few bits of furniture and broken trash and scraps of paper. Did you find anything down on the lower floors? Well, yes, Penrose said, a hint of mirth in his voice. What would you say, Martha? She started to tell Selim. The others, unable to restrain their excitement, broke in with interruptions. Von Ormhorst was staring in incredulous amazement. But this floor was looted almost clean, and the buildings we've entered before were all looted from the street level up, he said at length. The people who looted this one lived here, Penrose replied. They had electric power to the last. We found refrigerators full of food and stoves with the dinner still on them. They must have used the elevators to haul things down from the upper floor. The whole first floor was converted into workshops and laboratories. I think that this place must have been something like a monastery in the Dark Ages in Europe. 
or what such a monastery would have been like if the Dark Ages had followed the fall of a highly developed scientific civilization. For one thing, we found a lot of machine guns and light autocannon on the street level, and all the doors were barricaded. The people here were trying to keep a civilization running after the rest of the planet had gone back to barbarism. I suppose they'd have to fight off raids by the barbarians now and then. You're not going to insist on making this building into expedition quarters, I hope, Colonel? Von Olmhorst asked anxiously. Oh no, this place is an archaeological treasure house. More than that, from what I saw, our technicians can learn a lot here. But you'd better get this floor cleaned up as soon as you can, though. I'll have the subsurface part, from the sixth floor down, air-sealed. Then we'll put in oxygen generators and power units, and get a couple of elevators into service. For the floors above, we can use temporary air-sealing floor-by-floor and portable equipment. When we have things atmosphered and lighted and heated, you and Martha and Tony Latimer can go to work systematically and in comfort, and I'll give you all the help I can spare from the other work. This is one of the biggest things we've found yet. Tony Latimer and his companions came down to the seventh floor a little later. I don't get this at all, he began as soon as he joined them. This building wasn't stripped the way the others were. Always the procedure seems to have been to strip from the bottom up, but they seem to have stripped the top floors first here, all but the very top. I found out what the conical thing is, by the way. It's a wind rotor, and under it there's an electric generator. This building generated its own power. What sort of condition are the generators in? Penrose asked. Well, everything's full of dust that blew in under the rotor, of course, but it looks to be in pretty good shape. Hey, I'll bet that's it. They had power, so they used the elevators to haul stuff down. That's just what they did. Some of the floors above here don't seem to have been touched, though. He paused momentarily. Back of his oxymask, he seemed to be grinning. I don't know that I ought to mention this in front of Martha, but two floors above, we hit a room. It must have been the reference library for one of the departments that had close to 500 books in it. The noise that interrupted him, like the squawking of a Brobdingnagian parrot, was only Ivan Fitzgerald laughing through his helmet speaker. End of part two.